This is directional. start this thing won't we we'll just do it yeah, yeah. Um, let's do it everybody welcome back to another directional i am yerk tittle and this is me i'm chantal ryan your resident host anthropologist game designer mad woman and we have a special guest today and yeah, would you like to do the intro? Because uh, you've, you've got a history here. We do. We have a very dark history, Caroline and I. Everyone welcome <laughs> Caroline Marshall, who is an amazing person. And, and we'll get more into the work that Caroline does right now. Uh, and for the last few years, Caroline has been the founder and person in charge of a really amazing development team uh, called Interior Night here in London. And we'll talk a little bit more about the amazing game that uh, they released. When was it this year? Last year? I don't remember time anymore. Last year. Bonjour, bonjour. Uh, July last year. July 22. It is. Caroline, do you want to tell us something about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if I have such an exciting intro as you guys. Um, I'm French, as you probably can hear. Um, I'm a game designer, um, been in the industry for two decades, a bit over two decades. I live in London now, which I enjoy very much with my family. Um, and I'm very excited to be here today with you guys. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool because our show is, is about, you know, the creative rebellion in video games. Um, yeah. uh, or... Not just in video games, or the or the creative rebellion that we believe games can lead the charge of, seeing as we are the sort of leading culture in the world now, the leading art form, you know, perhaps even the leading forum for people to organize and and communicate in, etc. And um, and uh, when I was to- telling Chantal about the prospect of talking to you, um, she got very excited because. I did. <laughs> because we we be- both believe that you've actually always been making very rebellious games, which which people might not necessarily associate with them. But your games that you've worked on um, have always... Which are. Which, which are, are. Which are. <laughs> I'm doing this sort of like long read thing where it's like, you won't believe what happened. You know why? Yeah. <laughs> um, isn't, that, isn't that how they make content these days? But no, I mean, for instance, you worked uh, at Quantic Dream before uh, you founded Interior Night. And, and you know, Quantic Dream with Heavy Rain, for instance, being one of the games you worked on. Um 
uh, are uh, rebels in a sense that they make games that a lot of the industry at the time was considering sort of old-fashioned or that's not game enough. And, oh, like this thing is focusing on story. Why would you want to do that? Oh, this is, it's more of an interactive movie. This had this has nothing to do with games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to dare to put, not to not just make that, but also put so much production values, so much effort, so much talent. Mm. Um, it was a huge commitment to what it was doing. Heavy Rain, the game, was a very kind of cinematic, heavy, story-driven game that took a lot of bold design choices. And I don't know that we had ever before seen a game commit so deeply to itself as a narrative driven beast it was kind of billed as almost like a hollywood film you could play and that is you know it's actually not uncommon these days to hear that bandied around but i would suggest that heavy rain was really the first game to kind of grab that headline and uh, actually live up to it as well uh, do you have particular memories of that time, Caroline? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a long and taxing game to make. Uh, it took five years, I think. But <clears throat> it was a wonderful experience. I think, as you say, it was the first that was committing openly to like being an interactive movie although in like for us it's never been a movie because there are things you do in this game that you would never do in a movie in terms of pacing you know of course the agency obviously but just like the pacing of the type of scenes you let people play it's like they, they, they wouldn't fit for the feature at all but it's great in a game like you know playing being a dad in the evening with your kid, like a divorced dad, trying to manage your your kids, making them snack, switching the lights on in the house uh, because it's getting dark. He wouldn't like in a movie. It would be cut about two minutes, and in the game, it's like 20, 30 minutes of your time, and it's great to be in there. So I thought, <clears throat> you know, it's got its own its its own medium, of course, and its own genre within the medium. But yeah, it got like wonderful memories. I, I think like the foundations of that were set with Indigo Prophecy slash uh, Fahrenheit, which is the first game I worked on. And I arrived in the industry, like no idea what a game designer was, what it meant. No idea what a game was supposed to be actually, because I only had played a few. Um, and seeing like Fahrenheit being just like about stories and you make movement to interact things and what you do changes the story. I thought that's amazing. Like I thought it was really cool. And then I think Heavy Rain takes that um, with a better cinematic presentation, you know, better story as well, with the very bold choice of not having any game over, which I thought was really great because you don't interrupt the story. Whatever you do, the flow is uninterrupted, which is fantastic for the experience, really. Um, did did you did you want to become a game maker when you first started? What was what was what was Mini Mini Caroline? What did Mini Caroline want to do? <laughs> well, Mini Mini, like before eighteen, Mini Caroline had other ideas. Like she didn't know. 
Um, and when I was uh, studying like, around 22, I was quite into um, contemporary art, like digital installations, etc. I thought that was like, really interesting. I wasn't an expert, but I was I was at Sciences Po, like a comms and politics school. And we had options and I took everything contemporary art I could. Um, and then I was looking for like, what can I do next? I played a few games, like before 18, like I played Sonic and for me, that's so boring. Um, but around 18, I played Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, the first one, and then Metal Gear Solid, which is the first game I played on my own and finished on my own. I was blown away by this one, just like the creativity, the design creativity in it was fun. And then just as I was finishing my studies, I stumbled on a leaflet saying um, writers for video game. I'm like, oh, wow, wow. Does it mean? I thought before that, I thought it was tech people making games, only tech people <laughs> making games, only engineers. With dear listeners, leaflets, dear listeners, there used to be leaflets flying around in the streets of Paris. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Looking for a game of right. <laughs> This is the beginning of a horror movie. <laughs> like, yeah, just show up at this studio, guys. It's fine. We'll it's pay you. French bar, like in the toilets, falling from the sky. Like, yeah. I, I can. I just imagine <laughs> David Cage. Like David Cage in a white van at night, sort of with an open door in the back, just like. Get in! <laughs> yeah, kids, come inside and write games for me. <laughs> no, but it's and true. What, you know, what, what background, Caroline? What was your background um, as a writer? Yes, you got the job. It seems. <laughs> yeah, I got the job. I know. I know. I was lucky. No, I, I had to, like at the time because I'm old. There was no video game school, game design training whatever so i just like i did um like a politics slash com school and then i did a master in what do you call that it wasn't really ai uh it wasn't technical right it was uh i did a master's at the Ecole Nationale des Beaux-Arts that was like hypermedia multimedia at the time Uh it was the hyper the hype word at the time (laughs) hypermedia so we studied like the, from project management to a bit of 3D, like it was like really high level. Um, and then I just I, I knocked at Quantic Dreams door. I did a couple of jobs before that, but then I knocked at Quantic Dreams door when I realized Omicron was made by a French studio. Um, oh, I loved Omicron. That was great. It was fantastic. The it first was open world. about innovative games, right? Yeah. What is it? The what is it? What is it? It's really funny. I, I'm, I mean, I love J- Japanese games and I love French games. And to me, those are the two worlds, I think, that have made me a game maker. Uh, what do you think it is about the French that, that, that make games that are so inspirational? I mean, for me, like looking at Eric Chailly, um, you know, with, you know, Another World and Out of This World or Frédéric Grenal with, you know, Alone in the Dark, who created the survival horror genre. Looking indeed at, at, at David Cage and, and what he did with, with Quantic Dream and what you did on uh, or going forward in all the games. Um, I think there's something actually sort of profoundly rebellious about 
the French in general because you guys like to, you guys <laughs> <Absolutely>. like to, <laughs> no you no it's true because you like to protest all the time at every given opportunity and uh, and find an excuse to go in the streets and not go to work so that's yeah. that's yeah that's very French um, that's very smart really yeah, absolutely <laughs> um, you know it's 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 a country that very much is synonymous with with revolutions um, but but also. What do you think it is in the French spirit that makes the French make such unique games and have such a unique approach to them? I would say there's a culture of the auteur that you can't find in a lot of places, and deeply rooted with like filmmakers, writers. I guess that's part of the artists in general, by the way, painters, etc. I think the like. There's this culture of that, like, so we expect, like, it's not really a debate in France, like, whether games are part of culture and art or not, I think, like, everybody's like, yeah, um, you know, so you've got this taste for auteurs, I think, in French, like, it, it's valued to be creatively different and express yourself and be bold. In the culture, I think that's that's one reason, maybe. Too many males, clearly, in all the names you mentioned. I'm excited to see what comes next. Mm. Um, because author is often synonym with, you know, author without any e at the end, like with male, mm -hmm. male creators. Um, same in Japan, by the way. Like, my top five games are probably all Japanese from the early 2000s. Um, <clears throat> I guess that, but it's, yeah. I don't think they have this auteur culture at all. Uh, it's probably a different reason for. Yes, but it's funny, but you mentioned, but you mentioned Metal Gear Solid and of course Kojima, you know, is like the, the one, mm. if not the first. I was just thinking, I've like, I have no doubt they exist, but I've never heard explicitly of uh, a woman from Japan associated with games in general um whereas you know i've heard of you carolina and i um i personally grew up with my favorite games being made by uh the sierra crew so we had roberta williams and we had jane jensen and laurie cole so i kind of i did I was very fortunate to grow up with women game designers uh, being very visible and out there for me. But uh, yeah, it is, it's a fascinating observation to be like, hmm, where are the French women and the Japanese women? And like, what's up with that? They're coming. It's, it's, <laughs> yes, it's, fu it's funny because in Japan, actually, J Japanese games are uh, some of the greatest games uh for instance, Landstalker and other games have been made by companies that have been run by women, uh, you know, very often also the mothers of the male developers. Strangely, there's been a few incidents as well where really? uh, maybe they were such nerds that they needed. <laughs> but then in the end, <laughs> mommy, please, can you run a company for me? Um, so... So, so Japan has had like extraordinarily to this day has extraordinarily powerful creative women as well. But there is something very interesting happening in this game industry, where for some reason, 
um, you could have a big game awards show and then suddenly the only people on stage are men. I, I mean, it does happen occasionally, I hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it is a problem. Also, the, the thing of the auteur is also a thing that goes, seems to be going against a lot of what the game industry, as it likes to call itself, as if we were all sort of factory workers uh, working for corporations making quote-unquote product as opposed to having something to say. Um, the fact is that, you know, it's names aren't really welcome, individual names of any kind, whether they be male or female or, or, or of any other gender for that matter. We don't invite names on stuff. We just want to see a brand, a logo, and ideally yeah. a product. I think there's a maybe to that. And, and you know, I don't think the, the <clears throat> concept of auteur is like what we actually really, really need, et cetera, because that there's, there's been you know, excess with auteurs. Like, we know making a game requires a team. Like, the author is here to set the vision, but without the team to enrich this vision and make it happen anyway, nothing happens. So mm -hmm. Films are also teamwork, like a lot of, but, you know, so I think that's why there's been, like, some kind of reluctance, maybe, to talk about, to have, like, names. On top of what you're saying, because I, I also agree with what you're saying, but I think like the risk of like going to alter is that the teams get robbed of their work and their recognition as well. So it's a it's a yes. balance. Yeah. It's a it's a really good observation, and I think you do bring up something really valuable in uh, this concept of games almost having this little bit of pushback against this kind of one name attached so you know we've got the Sid Meier's civilization or whatever um you know a few have tried it a few have gotten away with it uh but I think that uh games have kind of had I don't know if I'd say punk but they have kind of had this background of being outside the dominant culture and kind of rejecting the status quo of capitalistic affairs. Definitely uh, much older games. They were far more, uh, I, I would describe them as punk. They were very kind of in your bedroom, maybe with some friends, tinkering with these things, doing crazy things, and everyone thought you were mad, but you just kept going, and, you know, people were kind of rogue gorilla distributing these little games they made out on floppy disks, like, kind of <laughs> black market stuff across the street. It, you know, it was very, like, counterculture in a way. It was the nerd strike back. It was the, you know, the maligned people suddenly making things that were really cool and intriguing and uh, obviously kind of grew into capitalism, grew into this huge multi, multi-billion dollar industry that capital has kind of acquired and corrupted in its way. So I can definitely, you know, we can see those roots of... Um, it's about the game. It's about the art. It's not about the names behind it. Yeah. Uh, while balancing with that, that auteur culture or putting a, a person's brand, like a Hideo Kojima slapped across it. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I don't think it's about putting one 
one name on a game, uh, but I mean, it's like when I go to see a play, um, I I very rarely even know who's directing it. Um, I I go in there just to see a play because it sounds great, and then or a musical or whatever. But but as I watch it, you know, I will pick up the brochure and 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 then I will, oh, wow, they're really good. Who are they? Oh, great, I've done this thing. Okay, cool. And it's like, and there's never a way of doing that with games. I mean, it's so rare that you will that you will play a game going, oh shit, I love the animations in this game. <gasps> Sit for the credits. Yeah, and then it, <laughs> and if and if they're lucky to even remain in the credits because they might have departed two months before release, and then the company just decides to drop their name. It's like oh. it is. There is that sort of you know. It's it's not about the auteur. It's not about the single auteur, but it's the fact that we have we are collections of artists and technicians and other people, or technical artists for that matter, because everyone who works on the game is an artist. Um, because we're working in collaborating on an artistic vision, um, and uh, and that's that is a thing that to me is lacking. And if we do that, then of course we can have people like Mr. Guimau and other people saying that our games are not political, that they're about nothing. Yeah. And if they're about nothing, <laughs> then also then let's pretend that no humans made them either, right? And so it's it's uh, and I, so so it, that's that's what I love about you know as dusk falls is that you've. You know, this is a uh, Kelly Marshall's game at uh, with Interior Night, um, <laughs> which um, that is fascinating, is because you have you know uh, gone even further against the grain. Like you haven't decided uh, to just make a game that, in a way, deals with uh, and, and riffs on quote unquote cinematic or perhaps sort of high end TV um, sort of narrative, but also establishes a new visual style that you know you would think is kind of goes counter what people quote unquote want right now you made a game that aesthetically uh, doesn't have full motion video <laughs> or have you know graphics running at like 60 frames a second or whatever it is a beautifully made game that had where the actors were filmed uh, in the studio and and then and then you and it's also a multi multi-tiered narrative you know all sorts of different things that you can do and decisions you can make as a player not just alone but also multiplayer we should get into all that but the the fact that uh, you then extracted stills some some of them semi-animated etc and painted over each of them in this beautiful style what what made you decide to go like yeah let everyone else have you know pretend to be cinema and I'm going to do this thing. What, what, what was, what, what, what was that thought? Um, <clears throat> I guess the first reason is that we're a small team of like 35 who are at peak. We we're like 45. That can sound a lot, but for the game we're making, it's pretty a small team because it's essentially 12 hours of cinematics. It's like a very long TV series. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the story we're telling with us, the sports is super grounded compared to like, I think like any story, like most, the vast, vast majority of stories in games right now, we're just like on the spectrum, we're like completely grounded, um, real life situations, it's closer to TV storylines than to game storylines. Um, and so for that, like we needed like proper nuanced performances we needed humans like there's no there's no you know bfgs no ai no aliens coming into the story you don't have a 
spaceship, you don't have superpowers. So everything relies on the cues the players can take on the characters' faces, uh, the voice. Um, and so we, it was like from the get-go, like going full 3D was out of the question. We didn't want that. Because like whatever you do, like even if you have millions of dollars, I'm playing that Diablo at the moment, the characters don't look humans. Even in the top-end cinematic tier they're doing, they don't look human. Or they look like human here and there. But they most of the time, no. like a human, not For human. a bit. And then it breaks down. And, you know, Uncanny so... Valley. Doesn't work for a 12-hour story. So we went with, like, real actors, live actors, who are used to work with TV and not mocap as well, not even performance capture. Um, and that was needed for the story. So that was reason number one. That's why we went for the 2D. Uh, and as you said, everything's hand-painted, so it's very sensitive. Uh, but it was donkey work. It was insane. We've got like 15,000 unique frames in the entire game, so it's a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. And the other reason we chose that too is because we wanted to stand out. I mean, it's so hard right now. Like we're a new studio doing a new doing a new IP um, in a genre that you know we're we're not known. Um, so we have to like make a splash and don't have people think: Is this a Quantic Dream game? Is this a Telltale game? Is this a Download game? No, we established like a you know bold aesthetic. That it's not to say we're always going to be like that, but I, would, I think that for a first game it was important. So yeah, it's funny. I have, it's funny. I had the same thinking when I did the last worker is that it is my first game. I, I need to stand out. It is sort of mm -hmm. like, it's just sort of like the rebellion of originality, I guess. And, and, but also there's a risk of course involved with that because the general public doesn't necessarily want to have something as unique and original, you know, it's, yeah. You know, it's it's like it's funny. It's like people would tell me, "He's like, no one really wants to play a cell shaded game." I'm like, it's not cell shaded. Yeah, but it looks a bit like a cartoon. I'm saying, I do. They I mean, there are different kinds of people. There are people who seek familiar, and there are people who seek unfamiliar, mm -hmm. and they are two very, very different kinds of people. And they're never, or they're very rarely going to want the same things and you really have to yes figure out what kind of person you're appealing to and it's not you know it's not about demographics and consumer targets or whatever it's about not really giving a fuck if the people who aren't your people like it or not it's you know it, who are you who yes. do you want to connect but then also reach but reaching them is the problem right i mean mm -hmm. I mean, that's where I mean, publishers. That, that's kind of how we reach them. Through, <laughs> we we speak their language mm -hmm. of yeah. aesthetic. Mm -hmm. We, you know, beyond the obvious problem of cutting through everybody else's noise, but uh, you know, talking about wanting to make a splash visually or kind of announce yourself. Like that is that is why we kind of make these art design choices that are radically different from anything anyone else is doing because it's kind of like showing up and saying hey like your people are here like now you can find us because 
like the people who will be attracted to us are the ones who are gonna say that looks like nothing else I have ever seen and I want it I want that so bad yeah it's it's I I, I agree with it I mean I personally as 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 you know I mean I'm I, I always go for unusual things for the most part and uh, I gravitate towards things that dare to be dare indeed to be different um and at the same time, as we sort of become grown-ups and we run our own companies and studios and things, like I feel that sometimes, and I wonder if that's the same with you, Caroline, I wonder because you said that's that's what you've done with this first title. It's important for, to put yourself on the map and go, you know, let's make something that is you know, entirely its own thing and, and, and takes these big risks as well. Because in a way... You know, when we establish, when, when we're young and and we're startups, so to speak, people go like, "Yeah, sure, I'll believe in, I believe in madness and risk." And once and once we've achieved that, then they go like, "Okay, so now what are you going to do to actually make, to actually make money? Like, how are you going to make it?" No, you're you gonna... serious. Yeah, you're in the yeah. business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that is. Do you feel that that is also going to affect? aesthetics and your approach for your next title titles etc my only guideline for the next title is that it's better than what we've done which means what does better mean right is like innovative it has to be innovative because otherwise it's just a waste of time like I've got to spend years on a project like i've been in the industry more than 20 years i've shipped four games <laughs> and I'm proud of all of them and I'm, you know I'm really lucky um, I worked on a couple more you know but like some people are like 10 years in the industry and like I've shipped 10 games and they're like okay we're not in the same business then maybe you're working on mobile or something but like when you're on console PC you don't ship that many games like given the genre I'm in right I know there are smaller games you can make on PC more indie um but like, yeah, so it has to, like the next game has to matter. And for me, matter means it's got to be better and exciting, just like very selfishly for me. Because if I don't do something exciting for me, there's very little chance to no chance that it gets interesting for people to play. Yes. And there's no way it's genuine. There's no way it's authentic and it's, you know, trying something unique. So that's the bar. The only bar is that it's not about like, of course you take business considerations as well because you're like, okay, how do I make the next game reach more people? That's just the thing. It's not about how do I make more money. It's how do I make it reach more people? Um, but it's mainly what excites me. Like, just doing it from a very, because if you don't do it, if it doesn't come from a personal place, personal excitement it's going to be bland yes, and i think it, i can say that now because i'm old and i think i've got like you know the guts my guts have experience so i follow my guts before that when you're 18 you there's no guts to follow your followers are your guts are babies they don't know anything do you think do you think games take too long to make no they're so complicated and it never goes i think like you know I think making a game is more complex than shipping a rocket into space because it's not just tech and science. It's that plus art to eventually make art. So it's tough. It's complicated. 
No, I never think it takes too long. And the scale of games, like some games that just have crazy scope. I don't even know how you do those games. Like, you need thousands of people. Um, no, why would they take too long? Because the consumer... No, no, certainly because because you talked about us getting old. <laughs> no, but I like it. Like I like I like committing to something for years because I deeply believe in it and I'm excited for it. I'm not the kind of person who switches interest every six months. It's just not my personality. So I just go like I've like as this falls like to me personally, eight years. You go from initial ID, which hasn't changed one yota until the final product for like eight years to get it shipped. And, you know, it's not just game dev. It was like starting a studio, uh, finding the right people to work together, etc. Like being canned by, you know, you know, it's difficult. Like signing a deal takes time. Everything takes time. But yeah. even actual production was like four years probably three years and a half, four years. So it's still long. Mm, there's so many strands that go into it. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's the art and it's the technology that serves as kind of the vessel for the art. But then, you know, you bring up there's like putting a studio together, there's finding the right team, there's getting the money and the funding. All of these things are completely separate things. And, you know, there's... There's even more beyond that. And so games are like these crazy mythical beasts almost because like I, I talk a lot about rituals when it comes to making games. And I really, I feel like bringing a game to fruition is truly like a magic ritual because we have all these different required components that we need to kind of have available we have to go on journeys and seek them and bring them back and arrange them in just the right way and say just the right things and focus on them at just the right times in order to bring this kind of like insane energy into being until it like manifests in the world in a way that we can actually interact with and that impacts our lives and has power on our lives and i think you know, talking about how long it takes to make a game and all these things that go into it and thinking, you know, on the scale of time um, with these games that take five plus years to make, we we only have really so many games in us, each of us. So yeah. it's, it's really interesting to see what kind of games people are dedicating their lives to, what kind of experiences people are committing, you know, like a one-eighth of their working lives to. It's funny. I had no idea that we were going to go there with this particular episode and uh, and our honorable guest, Caroline, but it's really interesting, the idea that potentially games are also a rebellion against well, potentially common sense, the fact of making them, but also <laughs> <laughs> but also rebelling against our own mortality in a way. The idea that, you know, we will dedicate so much of our time. You know, it in the film world, Stan, Stanley Kubert was considered a nutcase for spending eight years working on a film. In the game industry, people go like, yeah, sure. Like, it's like, yeah. and, you're, and you, don't, you don't even have to be a genius 
now considered to be a genius in games you're just a regular grunt at this point it's crazy but we are not flying anyone into space um but maybe we're doing something better maybe indeed we are taking people onto onto our little artistic rocket ships and making them travel to places that they would otherwise have never visited and that they could never even visit physically but they can experience emotionally in an even deeper way yeah, and when you say us. that, Jörg, I just want to be really explicit because I know that you are not just talking about geographies when you talk about going to another place. You're talking about essentially the empathetic transformation that people go through, that uh, games like books and all other good art forms allow you for a moment to experience what it is to be somebody else and to see something through the eyes of other people. And that's an incredibly valuable gift that we can give to people and that people can experience for themselves. People take these experiences into the rest of their lives. And Caroline, I know that you in particular um, are very good at and also very bold about tackling these uh, almost quieter moments of humanity in a way that most games do not touch. You really engage with what it means psychologically to be human. You don't need these kind of grand world-saving narratives to tell an incredibly powerful story. So I would love to hear more about why you kind of narrow in on the narratives that you do and what that means to you. Yeah, thank you, because I love talking about this, actually. That's like the core reason, I think, why I'm doing this is the empathy games, or at least the games I'm working on, like, the, you know, how you can experience a deep connection and it's not identification, but it's really empathy with another point of view, another character that you're trying to guide. The character you're playing, like this, you know, identification is like really complex but simple. Like as soon as you make decisions for a character, you're trying, you know, to shepherd, make the best choice for what you think is good for them, knowing who they are mm-hmm. and just and for your understanding of this person. I'm just fascinated by that because I think decision-making, like all the choices we make in life and also in games, like reveal a lot about who we are. Not only does it open our horizons, but it also goes deeper inward and make you reflect about your own values, your core values. Like I remember, like I played, I played as the souls with my partner and I thought, I played it a thousand times. I'm going to make notes about the bugs, you know, it was like close to release. But actually, after a while, I just put my notepad down and I was just like kind of hosting because, of course, I know all the branches, but just like seeing him and discussing, seeing him making decisions, discussing with him why, you know, and we just had some lovely conversations where I became like such a nice person. I wouldn't make such nice decisions if I, you know, if it was just up to me. So just seeing him mm-hmm. making those decisions was like really lovely. It's like one of my favorite experiences of us. Mm-hmm. This is like playing with someone. That's why the game is multiplayer as well. Because you can have this like self-reflection when you play solo. It's quite a thoughtful experience. But when you play with someone else, 
uh, which is also a ploy to get more people to play games. <laughs> wow. Because the game is like, super approachable. Like, yeah, come in. <laughs> this story, come in. You understand this language. Um, but, so just to say, like, when you play with someone else, like, it just creates, like, really, you learn things about yourself, but also about the people you, you know, you think you know perfectly well. But every day you talk about the grocery list and the kids and stuff. And it's just an occasion to do something like entirely different. It's different than watching a show because you're so much more involved. You've got agency, so you can express yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really. Playing. Yes. It's about action, isn't it? And it's like it's and and it is it is a human. Yeah. I I would describe your game as a, as a as a human behavior action game. You know, where where you you decide on the actions that people take like based on you know the complex moral quandaries and and uh and conflicts that we face um uh and it's it's action it's what what are you doing to the world around you to the people around you in order to reach whatever goal you think you should pursue um and it's really really interesting because it's the first game or one of the rare games that doesn't reduce our agency to the binary of kill or let live Kissing would be good to my game last night. It was like we need an option to allow them to kiss them or to kill them. It's <laughs> literally all ever. It was great. Yeah, oh. booty, bo- booty call of duty would be good actually as well. <laughs> I'd play that. But you know, one of like one thing we're doing is that we switch point of view in the storyline, like you know. Tons of shows do that. In games, it's quite rare. But I thought that was important also for to generate the sympathy. That, you know, there's not just one side of the story. And people have different contexts and reasons to come into situations and behave like they do. Um, so switching that point of view, I thought, was uh, it's key also to, to elicit the sympathy and this broad understanding of life really mm. you know it's something we should do in our it's a muscle that we should like exercise in our everyday life and i think a game like as the schools helps you do that as well absolutely we're very prompt to judgment and be like oh this person's like this and why are they doing that it's so bad but when you see it from their perspective certainly you understand you're like oh okay Mm-hmm. i am extremely passionate about this topic in particular I think that games have a really unique ability to allow people to practice flexing that muscle and to build that muscle when you're able to kind of step into the shoes very, you know, almost literally in a way when you're able to, uh, you know, see through the eyes of a person and make decisions on their behalf once we introduce the ability to do something like play opposing sides or opposing perspectives to step into the shoes of people with opposing perspectives but see the context that shape the way that they have come to engage with the situation or understand the situation we can acquire one of the most valuable life skills in the world, which truly, you know, the the simplest word for it is empathy. But um, this understanding that when we disagree with a person, 
it's not, you know, just that we're right and they're wrong. This acquired understanding that we have come to decide that we are right about something because of the context we've had in our lives that kind of build into these logic channels that suggest that, yes, these things mean that this makes sense, whereas these other things uh, mean that your decision doesn't make sense. Um, You know, that we see that from our own perspectives in the context of our circumstances. But if you find that you go and you look at another person's life, someone who disagrees with you, and you actually follow back the opinions that they have about something, you'll often find that they've had a very different set of circumstances and experiences than the one that you have had, and they've received a very different set of information. And if you look with the sum of all of those parts, all of those different perspectives, you'll find that you often kind of come to understand why they feel the way they do about something. You'll understand why your greatest enemy has an incredibly bad take or so you think on something when you, you know, you realize that there was a very good reason for the way they thought about that. And so this is a life skill. This is a way that, you know, that this is our path to world peace, really. Like being able to understand that people's circumstances shape them and are valid um, is a way that we can achieve harmony between people, uh, most importantly, the people that we have the least harmony with. And so I think that games are such an important possible tool for really teaching the skill of, hey, we're going to drop you into two different contexts that are totally different and we're going to lead you all to the same spot and we're going to show you how you you different people can arrive with totally different understandings and values of a situation um and they can both be right at the same time like yeah, that is something we can take away yeah, and it's really interesting. We now have this, uh, you know, some of it is a fad, maybe, but there's a reason people are gravitating towards so much towards these, um, you know, Spidey in the in the Spider in uh, Spider Man in the multiverse or whatever, and and uh, everything everywhere all at once, and all, all these ideas of multiple narratives uh, coexisting at the same time. That's something because. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been for the last 20 years of, you know, games becoming sort of the dominant entertainment form, then I think this kind of narrative wouldn't have crept into, quote unquote, linear media either. And at the same time, we also perhaps through that indeed also are starting to empathize, not just with other people, but also with our, ourselves and our own multitude of, of personalities that exist within us and all the all the different choices that we could have made at any given point during the day. It teaches us a, a, a certain level of humility, but also forces us to have a new thought about agency and what we can and cannot achieve. Um, it's... It's great because at the same time we are playing the most of the games that are being played are are one where all of those multitudes are reduced ultimately to, you know, choosing which sort of multi-gun power-up to use in order to just get rid of the character that by default of just standing in front of you needs to die. So it's uh, so we also have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um 
But there's a bit of a renaissance. There is. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm excited. I mean, Caroline, what is the? What would be the game? What would be the? You, I mean, obviously, like it's you're probably already working on it. But I mean, what would be the game that to you is the ultimate game? Like the thing that what what would it have to, what what would it have to do? What would it have to do to us? <laughs> the ultimate game. <laughs> yes, not 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 mini Caroline's sort of ultimate game, but the, you know the one we're currently. No, no, no. I get you know social like socially. What do we need right now? Uh, that's a tough question, man. I think we at want. I think it would have to be multiplayer to teach us to talk to each other normally, not like being polarized like dumbasses. Um, yeah, and probably a great sense of. I would love a game that's multiplayer that teaches us, not teach, I don't like this word actually, that connects us back to simple joys of being, it's, it's got nothing to do with the game I'm making right now, which is, I'm not <laughs> making it, but like I'm thinking about, I'm just saying like, it's, a, it's not a game I could make, I think, but I think we probably need it, like a multiplayer experience that allows us to connect again with the simple joys of life and nature. Because we're being stupid at the moment. I'm very angry, by the way. We're being stupid by, you know, destroying our habitat, which is such a work of art. Like, it's so beautiful. We're just destroying it dumbly. And we're not rational creatures. And we're just selfish and thinking in the present. So I would love a game that allows us to do that. We connect with each other. It sounds very hippie. It's not like you know, just like connect back to the sense of exploration, the joy of being in the world with your feet connected to the ground. And I know it's crazy to say that something digital could let you do no, that, but I think it can. You've played Journey, you've played Shadow of the Colossus, like those games can completely conjure that. It's it's funny. It's like uh, uh, I'll be uh, promoting my little game here for a second. No, but uh, C Smash of the IRS which is coming out. It <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Out. Oh, thanks. Uh, coming out next uh, next Friday. Jesus Lord. Um, uh, uh, is uh, what I I was so sick of all the noise, and also I was actually so sick of thinking about narratives because I felt that like I was all uh, in my own game. It's because I was. I'd spent so many tens of thousands of lines, you know, that I wrote for the game and recorded with actors through the pandemic and all that stuff. And da, 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 da. And, and and the interpretation that goes into narratives as well. It's like some people might not get your humor. Some people might not understand what you were trying to do. Perhaps it was from out of insecurity or whatever. It doesn't matter. But at the same time, I said, like, I'm dealing with problems in this game. I'm dealing, in the last work I was dealing with, like, you know, with, with, with Amazon and this and commercialism and capitalism and all the stuff I'm angry about. I was like, I don't want to be angry anymore. I just want to make something that is beautiful and it makes people feel good and their own body with other people or alone, but listen to great music and just feel one at one with themselves and with, to sound really you know, cheesy, but one with the universe. And so I'm going to do that in space and I'm going to allow people to move and be physical and also dance because the music is very incredible. And so people are doing that. And I realized, oh my God, that is ultimately taking me back to what games were always for me. 
is like is a space where we can be ourselves or not. It doesn't matter, but we can just be and we can enjoy ourselves and each other within it. And and so multiplayer is key to me as well, absolutely. And multiplayer narratives potentially, but multiplayer ludic, delightful, you know, spaces in which we can share each other and ourselves and just have a freaking good time. Yes. Simple play with other beings. Like that is, it's funny. We all come back to our childhoods, it seems, in the end. This is a great revelation that comes to us in our old age is so often, what was it that brought me joy? Such, such you know, pure joy as a child. What was it? Okay, I'm going to bring that back. That's what I want to do. So maybe indeed we are rebelling against mortality and we are rebelling against time because we create things that that ultimately inspire and bring back the thing that is the life force of delight and and joy and and travel you know to mind and physical spaces um i mean this has been an absolute joy having you on caroline yes. Me too. Like, should do this. We should just hang out. I would love that. Heck yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Just a bunch of narrative designers and game designers sitting around talking about what makes games good and what we should be doing better. Go save the world with our five, eight year games. The, the, the recent Chantal. It's going to the next one. Sorry, it's already too late. But the, but the reason Chantal and I do this podcast is because we, well, we deeply feel that we need to bring change, but also we, you know, this is our best excuse to find ways to actually start conversations that should be happening around the dinner table, that should be happening around, around drinks, that should be happening in the park, you know, that should be happening, like my, looking up at trees and listening to the wind, really. Like this is because that is the kind of, that is indeed like what, what art is and what we make and what we should be doing. You know, the fact yeah. that we are being, yeah. It's our community. We're just kind of like a little bit far away from each other. So, you know, we made a space, made a space where we can come have that spiritual drink and just exchange ideas and passion. Caroline, thank you for coming on. Merci. Directional is hosted by Jörg Tittle in London, Chantal Ryan in Adelaide and produced by Paul Bennon in Los Angeles for Rapid Eye Movies. The theme song was composed by Oliver Krauss and Frally Hines. Follow us on Twitter at Directional Show and listen to past episodes at directional.show. See you next time. <laughs>